Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. After leaving the EU, what is Brexit Britain's trading role in the world? Boris Johnson has declared the country will be a beacon of liberal principles. We are re-emerging after decades of hibernation as a campaigner for global free trade. And frankly, it is not a moment too soon, because the argument for this fundamental liberty is now not being made. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your insider guide to British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In our fifth and final summer interview special, I'm delighted to be joined by Liz Truss, the Secretary of State for International Trade and Minister for Women Inequalities. According to the Conservative Home website, Truss is the most popular member of Boris Johnson's government, a keen advocate of a buccaneering policy of striking free trade deals with anyone and everywhere. We'll be exploring the economic worth of such agreements, what's coming down the tracks, and how that agenda may play to our own political future. Liz, welcome to Payne's Politics. Hi, Sebastian. Great to see you. How's your summer been? Have you managed to have much of a break from departmental work? I did get away on holiday, but there's been quite a lot of work to be done in the department as well. So uh, (laughs) you're kind of always on as a cabinet minister. Indeed, and there's been lots of discussion of that in news reports recently as well. Now, let's just talk about that clip we heard from Boris Johnson at the very beginning there, that what he calls global Britain, we're leaving the EU, then trade with the rest of the world. Why do you think this agenda matters? Well, this agenda is incredibly important, and this is a very important time for Britain to be making the case for free trade on the world stage, because we saw a rise in protectionism even before the COVID crisis, the number of protectionist measures being taken by governments across the world were increasing. And what the UK is doing is showing that there is an alternative, that having freer trade helps deliver jobs and growth and ultimately prosperity across the world. And we've demonstrated that with our programme of trade agreements. We've just launched our new developing countries trading scheme, making it easier for the poorest countries to trade with the United Kingdom. And we are believers that free trade helps deliver increased prosperity. Now, the first major trade deal you signed was with Australia, and that came a couple of months ago. The next one in your pipelines, I think, is New Zealand. How's that one going? That's right. I mean, we've We've signed deals covering 68 countries. The rollovers. Some of deals. those were rollovers, although Japan went further and faster than the EU deal, particularly in areas like digital and data, which is a real strength uh, for the UK. Australia was the first from scratch deal, which covers every single area of the economy, a very liberal trade deal. And we are close to sealing the deal with New Zealand as well. Now, of course, when that deal was signed, I'm looking at an article that I actually wrote about that deal being signed, and it essentially says there were 15 years going to reduce tariffs. But the key thing is, how much is that going to benefit the British economy? The key point about the analysis that we conduct is it is static comparative analysis. So it doesn't predict the future. 
It simply says, in the state where we are now, how can we expect things to change across the economy? So it isn't a forecast of the future. But if you look at the future, countries like Australia and New Zealand and the broader Pacific region are huge areas of growth. So there is a difference between a static comparative analysis, which is useful for comparing trade deals with each other. It's not necessarily very useful about predicting where we will be in 20, 30 or 40 years' time. And what we are seeing is a huge growth in Asia-Pacific. Two-thirds of the world's middle classes are going to live in Asia by 2030. And the types of products that they're demanding are the types of things Britain produces, whether those are high-value manufactured goods, quality food and drink, digital and data products, financial services. There is rising demand, and that isn't captured in those type of comparative static analyses. So I, I just think you've got to be careful saying that that is a forecast because it's not a forecast. Because obviously when you see the headline numbers of doing this deal, which obviously you were very pleased with and the government was, that gives you 0.01% growth to GDP, people, you can see why people shrug their shoulders and say, well, what's the point of all that then? But that is, that is a static analysis of where sure. we are now. This is about making Britain a global hub for trade, particularly in areas like digital and services where we're already the second largest services exporter in the world. And what those analyses show is the world is where we are now. You know, all economic analysis is based on history. But what I'm interested in is, you know, the future. And by 2050, 50% of the world's trade is likely to be digital. And if we're the country that have got a digital trade agreement with India, if we're part of the CPTPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, with its strong digital chapter then we are incredibly well positioned for that future economy. And you can't capture that in a static analysis, valuable though it is to compare different trade deals. So do you think, obviously, this is often juxtaposed in the reporting between what leaving the EU single market and customs union would do? So various internal government estimates, which were leaked to the media back during the Brexit wars, said that there would be, you know, a, a serious knock to GDP because of raising those trading barriers. You know, do you believe that forecast? Well, what we've achieved in the deal with the EU is a strong agreement, tariff-free trade, good agreements in other areas. We've secured data adequacy agreement with the EU. But again, those types of analysis compare the world as it was, not the world as it's going to be. And the EU is going to be a smaller proportion of the world economy in 20 and 30 years' time. And countries like you know, Vietnam or Malaysia, which are part of CPTPP, are going to be a bigger share. Mexico, it was rising up the world economic league tables very fast. And that's also part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So saying that you know, the relative strengths of the EU economy versus the rest of the world economy mm. in 2010 should dictate our economic policy for the next five decades seems to me wrong. And fundamentally, trade policy is long term. It takes a while for businesses to adjust to new trading arrangements in these deals, we're securing tariff-free trade for, you know, for products like whiskey and cars. Uh, we currently export over uh, 10,000 cars to Australia, particularly from the northeast of England. But of course, when we get those tariffs removed, we're going to be able to do more of that. But it takes time to ramp up production schedules. It takes time to 
build the industries. So we do have to look at where's the future demand for what Britain produces rather than looking backward, which I think, you know, it's six years, I think, since people voted to leave the European Union. We've got to start looking at the future rather than this sort of backward-looking analysis. Now, we have not had a real debate about trade in Britain for four decades because when we joined the EU in the 1970s, we handed over our trading policy. That's now back in the government's control here. That clip we played of the Prime Minister at the top there, he loves this vision of Britain being uh, a beacon for free trade. And it's something that obviously you share with him within that. But how do you sell that to people back at home? Because reducing tariffs on some things, yes, it can create cheaper goods and more trading flows, but it can also mean some very difficult decisions. And of course, the big example on this was farmers. And when you were doing battle with Australia to get that trade deal over the line, there was a lot of backwards and forth about what the agricultural sector was going to get. And I'm just wondering, where do you draw the line on those trade-offs? Is it a sort of totally free market approach where it's just the best thing for trade? Or are you still going to have limits and quotas and tariffs to protect where necessary? Well, in the case of Australia and New Zealand, those are two countries that have very similar standards to the UK. They're high-wage economies, high standards in areas like the environment, labour, animal welfare. So that's why we have been able to strike deals that are fundamentally liberalising because you know we have a common way of operating, very similar systems. There are huge benefits to both sides into being able to trade more freely for British exporters, but also imports, whether it's of uh, wine or the other quality produce produced in Australia and New Zealand. Now, that will be different depending on the type of agreement we're negotiating and also who we're negotiating with. Because Australia and New Zealand have very low tariffs and are fundamentally free trading nations. So that is why we were able to achieve that mutual deal. But there'll be other countries who don't take that approach. And I'm not in favour of unilateral disarmament. I'm in favour of creating those bilateral relationships where the trade is flowing in both directions. Well, let's talk about one of those other countries, which is America. And that is really the big prize that you want to get in terms of a trade deal, because the effect that would have on the UK economy would be would outstrip probably all the others you've done put together. But it's also going to be one of the toughest. How have you found this early stage negotiations changed since the Biden administration came in? Because we know President Trump was a big fan of a beautiful trade deal with the UK, as he described it. That's not quite the rhetoric that President Biden and the Democrats are using. Well, I'd slightly correct what you said, Seb, in that there are many exciting trade deals that we are looking at. So we're already in negotiations for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is a £9 trillion trade area. Very exciting. Stretches all the way from Vietnam and Malaysia to Chile and Peru. Does that matter, though, that that's on the other side of the world? What's exciting about it? is new countries are joining it. So the UK, I think, is likely to be the first new country that's joined it since it was established in 2018. But there are others who are interested, whether it's the Philippines, whether it's Thailand. So you can see that as a growing group of countries who believe in free trade, whether it's the strong digital and services chapter, which benefits the UK, or indeed in areas like goods, creating much more stable supply chains, which is... You know, the COVID crisis has shown us how much we need those stable supply chains. So that is an agreement. Of course, the United States 
were one of the initial parties in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And you know, the new administration has not indicated they want to join it, but who knows what might happen in the future. I think India is also a very exciting prospect for the UK. Historically, we have lost market share to other countries like Japan who have trade agreements with India. And there is a huge benefit to a trade agreement with India, which, unlike Australia and New Zealand, has very, very high tariffs. So I wouldn't say the US is the only game in town. Uh, there, <laughs> there are more than enough trade negotiations to keep the Department of Trade extremely busy over the next few years. But of course, the United States is our number one single country trade partner. We've already made progress getting rid of the tariffs on whiskey and dealing with the Airbus Boeing dispute. We're working very closely now with the Americans on large civil aircraft and challenging those countries who don't play by the rules. I'm going to come back to America in a moment, but just on the CPTPP, what's the timeline on that? You know, Could you imagine us being joined up in that by the next general election? Certainly. I mean, I hope we will be able to have concluded negotiations by the end of next year. And does it matter that's on the other side of the world that, yes, it's growing in importance in terms of trade, but, you know, in your view, does geography still matter? Geography matters, but it matters less. And people talk about the tyranny of geography in trade. But of course, when you have digital trade, when you have a lot of, you know, 66% of the UK services are delivered remotely, they're delivered digitally. It's becoming less important. And you're seeing the same trend in things like remote working. It matters less exactly where you are. You you can operate your podcast from your living room or from being in a different part of the country. And that is true of trade as well. And it will be increasingly true of trade in the future. I'm not saying geography is irrelevant, but it is becoming less important. Now, one other country I want to ask about is India as well, because that obviously tied us into the COVID crisis as well, because we know the government is very keen for a trade deal with India, and there's been lots of backwards and forwards. And that crucial point when the borders were kept open or not as tight as they may have been, some commentators said, this is because we don't want to annoy India because we want to get a trade deal. Do you think there was any truth to that? And that's just that sort of that cross-pollinization of different areas of policy going into trade that, you know, obviously, I think in retrospect, most people in the government think that it wasn't the right idea to keep that border open, even if the government's wider aims is to try and get a deal with India as soon as possible. That was not a factor at all. All of the decisions, not even subconsciously among people. All of the decisions on COVID have been made according to the best evidence available at the time, and we've constantly worked very hard to deal with some of those international issues. And in fact, we're currently consulting on the trade deal with India. I'd encourage people to submit their views as soon as possible. The consultation closes on the thirty-first of August, and we'll be launching the full negotiations this autumn. And it really is a very exciting prospect for the UK, particularly in areas like digital, where, of course, India is extremely strong. We are a science and tech superpower. India is also a science and tech superpower. And the ability to exchange those ideas, which is ultimately what trade is about, it's about exposing yourselves, your industries, to the best ideas around the world, the best technology. And that's what helps us all develop and become more prosperous. 
So the phasing of where this goes next is that you've got New Zealand, which you're nearly done. Then we've got CPTPP and then America. Is that how the next few years of this policy looks like? So we've got CPTPP is already in negotiations. So we're in the negotiations. We are concluding very soon, hopefully, the New Zealand negotiations. We'll be shortly launching new negotiations with Canada and Mexico, which we've just been consulting on. And they're all part of CPTPP. So alongside the core CPTPP negotiations, we'll also be negotiating separately with all of the members. Areas like market access for goods and various various different aspects of those negotiations. So that, that is one set of negotiations we're doing. We're also launching the agreement with India. We're also looking at the Gulf. We're looking at an agreement with Israel uh, as well. And of course, we are ready to start those FTA negotiations with the United States when they are ready to start those negotiations. And when you do get to that point with the United States, how are you going to deal with the very thorny issue of food standards? Because we've read a lot of stuff about chlorinated chicken and hormone-fed beef. And the re- and one of the reasons often cited that we did not align with the EU on food standards is because it would make a US trade deal impossible because there are two blocks that are very different there. How are you going to navigate that? Well, the United States is, of course, looking at its areas like animal welfare and food standards as well. And we we have discussions with the US. I met the agriculture ministry uh, when I was over in Washington, D.C. recently. And there are still some British products that are banned from the US. So last year, we successfully got access for British beef to the US market, but we're still pushing for US lamb. And of course, the important principle for me is that in any negotiations I undertake, we don't undermine British farmers with their high standards. So I will be factoring those in to our negotiations with the United States when they take place. But I'm very confident there is a deal to be done. Now, all this is part of Global Britain, which is the government strategy to re-engage with other countries outside the EU after that vote in 2016. How closely does trade tie in with diplomacy and hard power as well? Because even just in the Whitehall mindset, you've got your department, you've got the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. How do you bring that all together when you've got some very different secretaries of state with very different views and not a central power base? I do think your department, for example, should be rolled in with the Foreign Office one day. Well, I think the Department of Trade has demonstrated its value over the five years that it's been in existence. We've successfully got all those deals the EU had, covering 67 countries. We've secured the deal with Australia. We've got a huge pipeline of opportunity. And I think you're right in what you say, which is trade adds an extra string to our bow in terms of our overall diplomatic efforts, because we can use trade to achieve our objectives, to achieve our economic domestic objectives, but also to influence the world in a positive way, to work with our allies, as we we're doing with the United States, to challenge unfair practices, whether that's intellectual property violations, forced technology transfer, whether it's unfair subsidies by state-owned enterprises. Those are the types of things that we weren't able to actively do as part of the European Union. That was a DG trade issue. That capability is now in the hands of the Department of Trade. 
and we can make a real difference. So I worked very closely with the Foreign Secretary. You know, trade was a key part of the integrated review of foreign policy. You know, I think it's an effective additional capability that we now have and we're able to deploy. Well, that's particularly so given the cuts to the UK's foreign aid budget that went from 07 to 0.5% of GDP. And we've seen the reports of, of, you know, toilets left unbuilt, schools shut down, all those things across the developed world. How can you make the argument that we are re-engaging with the world while also cutting money to help the poorest? We already, and we still have, a very strong development contribution. And the fact that it's now part of the FCDO makes sure it's much more integrated with our broader foreign policy, which I think is a good thing. There's still the hard numbers, though, despite that integration, which which you can't get away from. And what I'm very focused on as Trade Secretary is using trade to help development. Traditionally, and this was particularly true, you know, 10, 20 years ago, often developed countries would use trade barriers to stop products coming in that were produced by developing countries actually stymieing their development. What we want to do, and we've just launched a consultation on a more liberal trading scheme, is we want to make it easier for developing countries to gain an economic independence through trade. So that is a very important part of our overall development work. We obviously couldn't be talking about foreign policy without mentioning the key development moment, which is the situation in Afghanistan, as we're talking on Tuesday. Obviously, evacuations are still continuing. The UK government has made it quite clear in public and private it does not agree with the American withdrawal. Are you disappointed in America as someone who sort of believes in the transatlantic alliance and the fact they've pulled out? We have to deal with the world as it is. I think we have to be practical Uh, about the way we're dealing with the situation. Our people have done a fantastic job on the ground and very proud of our armed forces and our other personnel who are working night and day to bring people back to the UK, both UK citizens, but also those in Afghanistan who have helped us uh, in the work we've done over the past 20 years. But we have to now move forward and deal with the situation as it is. What do you think this means for the future of liberal intervention, though? You know, did you support going into Afghanistan and Iraq back in the early 2000s? I mean, I wasn't involved in in politics in those I'm sure you had a view then, though. Well, I mean, I think it was a different world we were in uh, in those days. And of course, you know, what happened on 9-11 was completely shocking. And I think we all remember that devastating event. And we were right to take action. And we have made achievements over the last 20 years. You know, progress has been made in Afghanistan. And I certainly don't think that efforts have been wasted. But as I've said, we've got to deal with the world as it is today and the challenges we face now. And the idea that the UK could have continued in the absence of the United States and I know my colleagues looked at what could be done with other NATO NATO parties. The idea we continued is not, it, it wasn't possible. And I think we need realism 
as we're looking at the situation now. I'm just wondering that if in the future, in the near future, if another such question popped up on the government's horizon, you're in the cabinet and the prime minister says, you know, look, we're thinking of sending a force, intervening in this. Could you imagine any world where that happens? Or do you think that's it for intervention by Western countries elsewhere? I mean, that is a completely hypothetical question Indeed, about any possible is. country. And you, know, you can't make judgments on, but on, the princi- on a hypothetical basis. But on the principle basis. you can. Well, in all of these situations, we have to look at you know, what is the art of the possible, given the situation now, and also what is the response of our allies going to be? And we were talking earlier, Sebastian, about using trade more as part of our overall foreign policy and as part of having a positive impact on the world. And I think that is a very important plank of what what we do. So for me, it's not just about whether or not we intervene as a coalition with others. It's also about how do we use the other tools at our disposal to move things in the direction we want to see. What I want to see is, you know, free and fair trade. I want to see the system that we thrive under, democracies free, supporting free enterprise. I want to see those systems thrive and not be undermined. And that is a really important principle. That's a principle that the United States also supports. Now, a word you used a lot is free and liberal. Those are the kind of principles that you very much enjoy. They're not necessarily shared by everyone in this current government. There are a lot of people look at it and say it's not the kind of buccaneering Thatcherite free market government that you would approve of. And of course, you were the co-author of Britannia Unchained, a book in 2012, which was co-written by many other people in this government that set out the need for the party to take a more classical liberal direction, you might call it. Do you ever feel uncomfortable about things going on in this government and the way that conservatism is developing in this country? We have to be realistic that we are going through a global pandemic where... Not before that as well. No, but free association is difficult in those circumstances. And there have had to be restrictions placed because of a dire health emergency. But I'm certainly of the view that we're now in the phase of moving out of that. I was very supportive of opening up on July the 19th of getting back into the office, getting back into school and getting on with what you're talking about, which is living as a free society. And the Conservatives achieved huge, under Boris Johnson, huge electoral success in 2019, winning over new parts of the country. And I think one of the reasons that people in those parts of the country voted for the Conservatives, they do want to see that kind of buccaneering approach, that free enterprise approach. They want to see jobs, opportunities in their town or city, and they want to see that enterprise thriving. And of course, that is what the trade agenda is about. We've talked about its role in foreign policy, but its primary purpose is delivering greater prosperity and opportunities around the UK. And all of the trade deals we're talking about and the static analysis that you referred to, Sebastian, the biggest beneficiaries are the northeast of England, the Midlands, Scotland. Those are the biggest beneficiaries of free trade. And those are the enterprises that will benefit most, whether it's the car industry, the whiskey industry, the ceramics industry. Those are the opportunities we have now. And the vaccination campaign has been a huge success. And we need to build on that, opening things up and getting out there 
into the world selling what we do. And I think too much of the trade debate is often quite defensive about what we might potentially lose. I am much more of the view that we've got a huge amount to gain, that we have been quite closed off. You know, the European Union has not been forward-leaning on trade. It's not been forward-leaning in financial services or digital. It definitely hasn't been forward-leaning in areas like agriculture. But I think from all of our industries, whether it's food and drink, whether it's financial service, I think we're well-beating. We should be going out there and doing that. Do you not think the people in those places actually just want oodles of government cash? They just want money spent on their areas, their infrastructure improving, the social care fixed, all the things they can see around them, jobs disappearing, physical environment below the standards of the rest of the country. And how can you reconcile that with that vision you just put forward? Well, it's certainly true that we need to see infrastructure improved. As somebody who grew up in Leeds, I can tell you the infrastructure wasn't good enough and you know, it does need to be improved and we are putting money into that. But I think people also want to see enterprise succeed. They want to be proud of what they produce. You know, one of the reasons that trade is popular in the UK is people like seeing their products from their local area being enjoyed around the world. You know, we just launched a new campaign called Made in Britain, Sold to the World, you know, whether it's satellites from Glasgow, whether it's you know, buses from Falkirk, whether it's you know, whiskey, you know, all of these pro- people want to see that happening and they want to see opportunities in their area. I mean, one of the things we're doing is previously a lot of the trade support, a lot of the investment support was focused on London and the Southeast. We're now opening, or we just opened a new office in Darlington. It's part of, it's going to be part of the economic campus. And we're basing a lot more of our support and enterprise help in the north of England to help seed that industrial opportunity. They do remind me slightly of the regional development agencies that Tony Blair's government opened and then were all closed down by the Conservatives, if I recall. This is different. This is about involving local businesses in our trade negotiations, in our investment discussions. This is not about the idea that you can manage the local economy from a development agency. It's about involving businesses, engaging them in those opportunities around the world. And my view is we do need to export more as a country. We know that jobs in exporting industries pay more. They pay 77% more. We know they're 21% more productive on average. But those jobs have been concentrated in London and the southeast. And I think what people want everywhere in the country is jobs that pay well with a strong purpose. Now, finally, Liz, we've got a couple of minutes left. So I have to ask you, of course, you're very happy, no doubt, in your current trade brief as International Trade Secretary. When could you imagine running for the party leadership? I am extremely happy as Trade Secretary. I think I've got the best job in government striking these new trade deals for the first time in 50 years and being able to Which has made you very, very popular with the Conservative Party grassroots. And it's part of a team effort. You know, as you've said, you know, the Prime Minister's given huge support to this agenda. It's part of our vision for Global Britain. And the Prime Minister's doing a fantastic job and I'm sure he'll be in office for many years to come. And when that day comes to an end? 
As I say, I'm enjoying my job, Sebastian. Liz Truss, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. And if you're feeling happy over the bank holiday weekend, then why not leave us a positive rating or a nice review? Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Harry Shannon. The sound engineer was Breen Turner. We'll be back next week to our regular Payne's Politics format, and I hope you've enjoyed this series of interviews. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.